We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 9. We're in a sermon series called Help Wanted because if there's one thing that's obvious in today's world, it's that the world is desperate for good employees. Desperate for good employees. When I think of my own work experience and when I talk to you about yours, that is obvious. The world needs more good employees. And from the moment I got, first moment I got my first real job, I realized how desperate we are in need of good employees. I got hired as a junior scientist doing cancer research at the U of M, and I showed up, and I was in a team of four people, and I looked at what they asked me to do, and I looked at our goals, and I looked at how we were accomplishing all that thing. I thought, this task is way beyond me. This is way beyond me. And as I worked there for a few weeks, afraid I was going to be exposed as a fraud, I looked around at the other people on my team and realized three of the four of us are frauds. We don't belong here. There was one lady who was carrying that team. She was amazing. She was a good employee. Her name was Jen. And I remember I worked there for a few weeks, and I thought, you know what? If I was the boss of this outfit, I would just fire the three of us, and I would give all of the money to her. She's amazing, and we are not doing a good job. And everyone is looking for good employees. There are the good employees, and then there are the dead weight. And it's hard to even get people to do the work. I drive by all these stores now. I go down, and everyone's hiring, and they're offering incredible wages. I drive by McDonald's, now hiring $15 an hour. I go grocery shopping at Aldi's, $15 an hour. It's incredible. My first job, I worked at the movie theater. I made $5.75 an hour, although I did get free movies and popcorn and pop. That was a good deal. I remember so often dinner for me would be eating a bag of popcorn, which was so soaked in butter it weighed more than some of my children do, and they'd be watching a movie with that and a 44 ounce of Mountain Dew, and times were good at five seventy-five an hour. <laughs> but corporations are having a hard time finding good employees, and they're certainly finding a hard time finding anybody to even do the work. And turns out there's somebody else. In fact, you and I are a part of a company right now that's having the exact same problem with us. It's called the church. And we work for Jesus. And he's having a hard time finding people who will do the work. And he's having a hard time finding people who will do the work well. And so today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to ask, what is the work that the Lord is asking us to do? Are we doing it? And are we doing it with our hearts? And putting our hearts in this. We've been reading from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. Now, the first reason why I think we don't do the work of the Lord is we have weak faith. I think when we got down to it, we barely believe that Jesus was real. We barely believe that he is who he said he was and did what he said he did. And as we read this, the first thing, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. And every time I read this, I want to stop and and point this out because there's no reasonable explanation for the spread of Christianity other than that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did. Because the Jewish people were against what Jesus did as a whole, as a nation. They liked their religion. They liked being in power. They didn't want Jesus to come and change everything. The Roman Empire, they didn't like what Jesus did. They wanted your allegiance fully to Caesar. Caesar was Lord, not Jesus. Now, if Rome came forward and pushed that a man died on the cross for sins, if Caesar, if they said Caesar did that, a lot of people would feel pressured to follow along because it's the power, it's Rome. If they said, oh, look, Caesar died, he's back now, a lot of people would say, yes, I don't want to lose my job. Yes, he's back. 
But there was a complete opposite push with Christianity, and it only makes sense that it spread if Jesus did what he said he did and was who he said he was. Because you didn't save your job if you went along with this. You lost your job. You didn't gain social status if you went along with this. You lost social status. Jesus wasn't in power. He changed everything. He turned everything upside down. He was a died a criminal's death on the cross, and he rose from the grave to eternal life. He had no power. There was no sway. And so the only explanation that makes sense is that it was true, that people were willing to make these sacrifices because it was true, and Christianity didn't just spread. It exploded. And the reason why is this right here. It says the reason why. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. He healed every disease and every affliction. You wonder why it spread so fast? Because everybody had seen him. And he had done these incredible healings. And healings were powerful. We just take our medical system for granted. I praise the Lord for our doctors and our hospitals. Our first kid came out after an incredibly difficult labor. He was all gray. And they, they shined him up like a bowling ball. Nobody was panicked. It was incredible. I was like, is he, is he going to live? And I was looking at them. They were fine. So I was like, I guess I, I should be fine. And they take him, they put him in a, a cloth, and they shine him up like a bowling ball. And that didn't work. So they take him over to the little table, and they put this little tube down his throat with a little pump. Get an air in him, and priest in the collar comes back, and he's alive. And then we go to the NICU for a few hours. They got all these cords and whatever on him to make sure he's fine. It's incredible. It's incredible what we have today, and we just take it for granted. A kid doesn't live back in the day. He doesn't make it. They don't have a basketball pump in Jesus' time. You think about all the incredible things that we have that we just take for granted. Smallpox is the first disease and the only one that we've been able to eradicate by human intervention at this time. The first effective vaccine in 1798, it led to the last occurring case of smallpox diagnosed in 1975. That's not that long ago. Evidence of tuberculosis dates back 5,500 years, and the first person to ever be healed from tuberculosis was 1949. Polio existed back into prehistory. What is prehistory? Somebody tell me, what is that like the book, The Land Before Time? <laughs> Polio existed back into prehistory, so long as we could tell. And we couldn't do anything about it until 1955. And most other diseases are the same. They only became preventable or treatable in the last 75 years. And here it is, 2,000 years before any of that. No one ever got better. Ever. That's why Jesus was such a big deal. There's a reason God does miracles. There's a reason why Jesus does miracles. And it's to validate his message. Salvation is coming, but his message of salvation is what was important to him then. I had a, I have an irregular heartbeat. It started like 14 years ago. It got progressively worse, very slowly to the point where I couldn't sleep at night. It felt like shoes in a dryer. And I'm physically fine, praise the Lord. I keep going in for this thing. I'm like, I'm, am I fine? Like, you're fine. I'm like, really? I can run. I can run six. I can do all these things, but I can't sleep because it goes boom, 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 boom. And so I got, they said, well, we can give you medication. I said, yeah, I can't sleep. So I take the medication. It slows it down. And now I can sleep at night. Well, I'm at IHOP. Does anybody know what IHOP is? 
It's an incredible ministry in Kansas City. Now, there's a lot of interesting things that go on there. If you go to IHOP, I'd like to talk to you about it, maybe prepare you for some things. They're both amazing and questionable. But it's an incredible group of people that love the Lord and are passionate about following him and believe in healings. And I go to this IHOP thing, and I feel the Lord giving me faith that he's going to heal my heart. This is not something you can manufacture on your own. I've tried. It says in the Bible, oh, ye of little faith, for those who believe, they can move mountains. You sit at home and try to believe and try to believe. You can't do that. The Lord has to bless you with faith. It's a gift. And I'm sitting there, and I, I, I'm confident that the Lord is going to heal my heart. I'm like, well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just going to go with it. I'm not going to make too big of a deal about it because, you know, don't want to get my hopes up or anything. And so <laughs> I go and I, I pray for the, I go up and pray for healing. And the guy I walk up to, I see, he goes, what is what did you like healing for? I said, I would like healing for my heart. I have an irregular heartbeat. He says, the Lord healed me of an irregular heartbeat. And so he prays for me, and I go back, and a few months later, I decide I'm going to go off the medication, and I go off the medication, and a few months later, the medication is completely not in my system, and my heart beats softer and more calmly now than it did with the medication. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the Lord healed me. But the interesting thing, too, is he didn't heal me all the way. I still have an irregular heartbeat. It just beats very softly and calmly now. And I've been waiting to tell you this for a few months because I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> but the Lord healed me. I told somebody in my family who's, you know, got some healthy skepticism. He said, well, why would the Lord heal you halfway? And I said, the Lord's only healed everyone halfway. All of these people, he healed every disease and every affliction. What does it say? It doesn't say that he healed them halfway. Because, you know, every single person that he healed got sick again and died. They're all dead. Jesus didn't come and save anyone from their sin yet, in the ultimate sense. We're all still waiting in faith for his return. And what do the healings do? What's the purpose of Jesus' healings? What's the purpose of the work that the church does and the work that the disciples do? It's all to go to validate his message of salvation. Jesus didn't come the first time so that we could be healed of our heartbeat or healed of our illness. He came so that he could give us the message of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, to die on the cross for our sins, to defeat the power of evil with his resurrection from the grave so that all who believe could be saved. And my family member there with healthy skepticism says, why wouldn't God? Because they're expecting that God will heal you right now, right away. We've had multiple healings in our church in the last year. We've tried to highlight some of those for you. The people who are healed, including myself, We'll still get sick and die. We've got to know what the Lord has promised and what he's come to do. What has he come to do? Well, he came and he healed everybody, proclaiming a message of the gospel of the kingdom. And the healings do a variety of things. The first thing they teach is about what is right and what is wrong. The Lord healed people of blindness. That will not be in his kingdom. That's evil. He's come to overcome that. The Lord delivered people of spiritual demons and evil. That won't be here forever. He came to show us God's kingdom so we know what's right and what's wrong. And then he also came with this message to prove that he is who he said he is. In Luke chapter 5, they bring him a paralyzed man. They say his biggest problem in life is that he's paralyzed. He can't walk. He can't work. He just lays there every day because they don't even have wheelchairs. We barely just invented the wheel. The guy just sits there the whole time. His life is in trouble. He can't do anything. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven you. In other words, you thought your biggest problem was that you can't walk. You're, even you. What sin could that man do? Couldn't even move. Even you, your biggest sin, your biggest problem, I should say, is that you are a sinner headed for hell. 
and I've just fixed your biggest problem. They all say, what kind, who is this? What a, what a fool. We brought you here because he can't walk, and you're healing everybody. And Jesus says, well, to prove I am who I said I am, and I'm doing what I said, that I'll say, rise up and walk, and he does. And so the healings go to show us what the kingdom of God is like, and they go to prove that Jesus Christ is who he is and did what he said he did. And if you look at that, this is the only reasonable explanation for the spread of Christianity. Because what other kind of fool is going to go along with a story that a powerless carpenter, convicted as a criminal and destroyed on a cross, rose from the dead? That's insane. That's absurd. And the only way it would spread, especially with such opposition, is if it were true. When the people heard that Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't have any TikTok video of it. Why did they believe it? Why would you believe something that nuts? It's because you saw him come to your town, because he went to every town. And you saw that he healed grandma. You saw that he healed cousin Billy, who's never walked in his life. And you saw it, and then you heard it, and you said, yeah, that makes sense. And then they told you not to talk about it, or they'd kill you, and you said, I can't. I can't shut up about this. This is incredible. And the people went out and did the work of the Lord. They spread the gospel. They told people about Jesus because their faith was strong. They believed Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did. And we don't enter into the work of the Lord because our faith is weak. And here you look at Jesus. He healed every disease and affliction. And you know what people of weak faith love? They love the phrase, Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Because it allows them to be comfortable in their weak faith, because they don't use words. If you don't, that is Satan's favorite saying, by the way. Satan wants you to be quiet. Satan doesn't really care so much. He does, but he doesn't care quite as much if you're nice. Satan's pretty fine with it if you go out and very helpful. In fact, Satan would actually like you to be very helpful because he wants you to think that you're the Savior rather than Jesus. And he wants you to be working for your own self-righteousness rather than Jesus. Satan really doesn't mind it if we're nice. In fact, a lot of times he likes it if we're nice. In fact, he tells us how nice we are. We're so great. We're so helpful. Because then we forget how badly we need Jesus. And we forget how badly we need Jesus they need Jesus and we need Jesus. Nobody's getting saved with the nice things that we're doing. They'll only get saved if we preach them the gospel of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Oh, he just did nice things. He preached the gospel if necessary, he used words. Oh, turns out it's necessary. He went through teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Jesus was a preacher. Satan might want you to forget that. But if you're going to be Christ-like, you're going to preach. You're going to tell people about Jesus. Reading through the book of Revelation, you look at God's wrath that is coming upon those who don't know him. And if you love people, you might make them a sandwich because people need to eat. You might do something nice for them. But what we're definitely going to do if you love people is you're going to tell them about Jesus. That's what he did. He went through preaching, teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news is here. You can be saved. Verse 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Now, the word harassed has been expanded to include just a variety of things, and you look at this, and I don't think you get the full effect. They were harassed and helpless. Nowadays, if Mr. Wolf walked into the office and went up to Miss Lamb and said, that's a nice haircut, Miss Lamb, when do you get off work? That would be harassment. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The, word, the Greek word, if we have that slide up there, the Greek word for harassed is skalo. You can already tell it's going to be terrible. It means to skin, to flay, to rend, to mangle. This is what Satan does to us. He doesn't harass us. I have no idea why we translated this harass. I was talking about this, preaching this passage one time before, and I was like, I want you to know what Satan does. He's a wolf that comes in among the sheep. Have you seen what a wolf does to sheep? doesn't make them uncomfortable. doesn't make them feel awkward. He's not just forward with unwanted advances. He rips them to shreds. And I showed a video of a wolf ripping a sheep to shreds. And all the moms screeched and covered their kids' eyes. And I got yelled at, you can't show that in church. And I said, well, you need to understand what Satan is doing to your neighbors. Maybe you should be less worried about your kids seeing a wolf mangle a sheep, and maybe you should think about how Satan is going to fry all of the people around you who don't know him, know Jesus. Where's your focus at? You're upset at a wolf ripping together a sheep. Why aren't you upset enough to go spread the gospel? They are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus doesn't say the answer is that they need a shepherd. They already have a shepherd. Jesus is their shepherd. And they need to know him. He looks at compassion because they're harassed and helpless. And they need to know who he is. And without him, it's going to be a complete disaster. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. The Lord has given him power because we have chosen him. We have a choice. We either love Jesus or we love Satan. It's one or the other. If you don't love Jesus, you love Satan, whether you know it or not. Even if you desire to love Jesus, oftentimes you still love Satan more anyway. We need to be delivered. And we need the Lord to fill us with his spirit and give us a love for him and a hatred for what he hates. We have an enemy. And he does more than just minor things. The things that he do, does lead to ultimate destruction. By default, we're not under the shepherd's care. To receive the shepherd's care, we have to repent of our sins and make Jesus Christ our God. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a harvest out there of people who would come to know him if we just tell them. But the problem is that the Lord can't find anybody to work. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The answer is not to bring guilt and condemnation upon the people who aren't doing the work of the Lord. The answer is to pray to the Lord that he would inspire people through his Holy Spirit to love him enough that they go out and tell other people about him. As we're looking at doing the work in the Lord, of the Lord, the worst thing to do is to sit there and guilt and condemn yourself because that's not going to lead to a powerful witness. The only witness that matters is of someone who loves the Lord. 
I've shared this story before. I was doing counseling at McDonald's because we didn't have a church building. We were a church plant. Didn't have a space to meet throughout the week. We just rented a place on Sundays. And I'm counseling this guy. And he hears I'm sort of talking about spiritual things, this other person on the side. And he comes up to me to talk with us about it because he hears that we're talking about spiritual things. And he knows he's supposed to do something. And so he comes up and he sits closer and closer. And we're talking about something fairly intimate. And I turn and finally I was like, this is a little awkward. I said, can I help you? And he said, oh, I heard you were sort of talking about God. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Would you like to know about God? And I said, oh, thank you. That's so sweet of you. That's so kind of you. I'm I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm very, I know what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. I know very well, and I know what the Bible says. And he goes, oh, okay, okay. And so I said, uh, I mean, there's just something about him. And I turned and said, do you like being a Jehovah's Witness? He goes, no. (laughs) No. I said, why not? He goes, Oh, man, they're, they're strict. They're, they're just really strict. <laughs> and here this church had done such an amazing job of guilting and condemning this man that he had to go tell people about his church even though he hated it. That's incredible. That's amazing, and it's worthless. The only witness that's any good of all is I love the Lord. Would you like to know him too? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We need God to inspire us us with his love and his spirit to get out there. And we need people who are interested in repenting of their sin and making him their God and giving him their love because he's not going to force himself on anybody. We did a sermon series, or we're going to do a sermon series, I say, this August called Work is Worship. And it's going to talk about all the ways that our work is worship to God. And I was preparing a sermon series about work a few years ago uh, for Labor Day. I was going to call it Working Hard or Hardly Working. I thought that was fun, and I was all proud of myself. And, I'm doing, and I thought about how terrible of an employee I was. And it's crazy that it took that long. But as I'm finally coming to prepare a sermon at work, I'm reflecting on my own experience. I'm like, man, I've done a bad job. I should apologize to my previous supervisors. And I'm literally preparing for this sermon. And I'm thinking about how I need to apologize to the boss that I told you about, the guy at the U of M, Dr. Michael Wilson. And I'm preparing this sermon, and all of a sudden, being up in my inbox comes an email from Dr. Wilson, if we can get that one up there. This is unbelievable. I haven't heard heard from this guy since I quit. It's been 10 years. I've never heard from any of my previous bosses. And here I am feeling like I should repent, and he emails me? He says, uh, Jeremy, I'm confident I'm contact- contacting the right Jeremy Lind who worked at the VAMC. I'm such a bad employee, I don't even know what that stands for. <laughs> I am preparing the work you had done for publication. My th- first thought was, don't publish it. I had initially delayed submitting it as I was planning to and other things. It looks like you're busy with the pastor of an active congregation. Our son Matthew lives up there. Let me know if I've contacted the right Jeremy Lind or not. And here I am thinking I should repent to this man, and he contacts me. I'm like, I'm not going to let this go to waste. If you get the next slide going, here's my apology. It's rather long. The most important thing is in the in circle in the red. Please forgive me. My gosh. I, was, I should have done a way better job. And then here's his response after that. He says... If we can go on the next slide. Jeremy, it's good to hear, uh, hear from you. We all had things pushing and pulling us in research, and I think you did very well in the laboratory. That's because he wasn't there. <laughs> he was busy doing other things. <laughs> it sounds like you found your passion in the ministry, and that is good. Now, this man, I know him. 
He was raised in the church. He's not a believer. I'm sitting there thinking about how I need to repent of this person. And I'm thinking, he knows I'm a pastor as well. Like, I can't reflect on the Lord like this. I got to say I'm sorry. What's he going to think? That employee that was a terrible employee, he went on to become a pastor. I knew that kid. It was no good. (laughs) Then he asks, do you remember where you put those lab books that I couldn't find? I don't remember. (laughs) So I stopped emailing him. But I did what I was supposed to do. (laughs) I repented of my sin. I was not a passionate or motivated worker. I slacked off. And lo and behold, he contacted me. And thank God he did. And a lot of us are going to stand before the Lord without repenting or apologizing to him as our boss. Here's what he's called us to do. Are you doing it? This is all one passage. All of the verses, all the numbers, all the headings, those are all written down by a very helpful person in the year 1100, so we could all turn to the same passage very quickly during the service. They're not what the original author wrote. Matthew sat down. He did not sit down and write, I'm going to write thought 10 subheading 2. This is a new thought. So this is all one passage from 935 to 1015. We're going to skip down to Matthew 10, verse 5. He says, these 12 Jesus sent out were praying for laborers in the harvest. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, it's you. Get out there. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. And Gentiles is just another word essentially at that time for people who didn't know God. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus is going to start with the people who he's prepared He's going to start with the people who have been getting his scripture forever who are yet still lost. He's going to rally the troops and look for more laborers in the harvest before they go out to the rest of the world. But the mission is the same, going to people who don't know God, even if they're still among the people of God. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a few weeks ago, I said something, and I, I gave you some teaching, and I didn't tell you the main point of what I said. In Matthew, he uses the words kingdom of heaven as he does here. The reason why is Matthew is written to the Jews. That's the piece I didn't give you. How do we know Matthew is written to the Jews? Well, in the genealogies, it goes back to Abraham. In chapter 1, it goes back to Abraham, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because Matthew's primarily writing to the Jews. And so he's highlighting their common Jewishness. And Jews don't like to say the word name of God. In fact, my friends who are Jewish, when they post online on Twitter and things like that, they still don't post the name of God. They type G slash D, out of respect for God. We're so, we have so much respect, we don't even say his name aloud. We're not even worthy to say his name. And so Jewish people don't like saying the name of God, and so that's why Matthew says kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God. If you read Mark, Luke, John, they use the term kingdom of God and Luke primarily because Luke has written to the Gentiles. How do we know? Well, in his genealogy, it goes all the way back to Adam because he's looking for uh, Matthew's looking for that connection with the Jewish people, so it goes back to Abraham, their connection. Luke is going out to Gentiles, and so he's looking for the connection with them, so it goes all the way back to Adam, their common ancestor. And so it says, tell him the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. 
And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And I think we don't go out and tell people because our faith is weak. We don't really believe it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? The Lord destroyed them with fire. You look at the Old Testament and people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is so harsh. And they read the New and they say, oh, the God of the Old New Testament is full of grace. I don't think you know how to read the Bible. Because Jesus is the same God of both. And here he gives grace. Praise the Lord. But he also just told you it would be worse for those who reject him than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus talks about coming violence that's worse than anything in the Old Testament. People say, I can't believe in a God of judgment. I like Jesus. I don't like a God of judgment. Well, if you don't like a God of judgment, you won't like Jesus. He's come to save us, but he's the judge. And it's, in his own words, it's going to be worse for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet we go out every day into our jobs, into our neighborhoods, and we don't tell people about Jesus Christ and his salvation because we don't really think it's going to happen. We've got weak faith. And so the question is, are we willing to seek him with our whole hearts? Are we willing to do the work of seeking him and humbling ourselves to the point where we're ready to receive his call to be laborers in the harvest? The Lord is looking to send you out. The Lord wants to send you out. And a few months ago in the sermon series in Jonah, I had you write down on a card who you're going to spread the gospel to and put it in your Bible. Did you do that? Guilting and shaming people isn't going to work, but you need to understand where you're at in reality. Have you convinced yourself you're doing the work of the Lord when you're not? Do you think it means to be a Christian to go out and smile and be nice and be polite and respectful? Or do you think it means to go to war? There's a spiritual battle. You're supposed to go to war. And you can feel the spiritual battle every time you try to open your mouth and say something about Jesus, can't you? I think one of the things that grows my faith the most is the spiritual oppression and the attacks of Satan that come against me whenever I try to open my mouth and speak about Jesus. And if you're not doing the work of the Lord, I'm sure you can relate primarily to that. You want something to increase your faith right now? Just think about how hard it is for you to open your mouth and talk about Jesus. Why is it that hard? Because you've got an enemy. You could go out and talk about the tooth fairy. He doesn't exist. The people in this world, they don't think the tooth fairy exists, but you could go out and talk about the tooth fairy all day long to people. The world doesn't believe that Jesus exists, but you can't go out and talk about him. He doesn't exist, but he is way too big of a threat for Satan to let you talk about it. I don't know if I said that right. Let me try that again. <laughs> the world believes he doesn't exist, and yet they are way too threatened to hear you talk about him. Isn't that interesting? Don't you find that a contradiction? I don't think they actually don't believe. I think what they actually are is incredibly threatened. They're frightened. They know there's a war going on, and they know they're on the wrong side of it. And they don't want to hear any talk about Jesus. Because it reminds them that they're going to hell. That's why on Easter, we substituted a nice cartoon bunny 
He makes everybody feel so much better. That's why at Christmas, we've substituted a caricature of a man who did spread the gospel, St. Nicholas. Instead, we've substituted a fat guy with toys. Oh, man, this Jesus thing. They believe he's a fairy tale too, but they don't treat him like one, do they? There's a spiritual battle going on, and you need to go get in it. One of the things that I do because I have a hard time meeting people who aren't Christian because I get to spend my time with you guys. It's fantastic. I love you guys. But it's very easy for me not to know anyone who's Christian. So I make sure that I get out there and I go do things. Like I joined a single uh, a dad's club, not a, a, a single dad's, a um, stay-at-home dad's club. I was looking to meet somebody, but not for that reason. I was looking to meet somebody to spread the gospel. To them. <laughs> or I Googled it. There's this thing called meetup.com. I, I, was, I went to meetup.com. I, what do I like to do? I like to play board games. So I went to meetup.com, and I Googled board games. Turns out there was a group of people meeting in my city playing board games. And so I got my Christian friends who Christians love board games, usually. I mean, I don't know what it is about board games. We love them. And so we go and play board games with these people. And you know what? They hated me because I was a pastor. So I quit. And I let everybody else do it because they didn't want to listen to me. And some of my congregation now, seven years later, still meet with those people playing board games, but they don't go to the restaurant anymore. They have them over in their home and they share the gospel with them. You got to go. You got to get out there. You got to meet new people. And you can't just keep dwelling on the same old people. How many of us think we're spreading the gospel? Because eight years ago, we shared it with aunt whatever, and we're still hoping that we get another chance. Keep moving. He says, shake the dust off your feet. Move on. Share the gospel. And then if they reject it, go find somebody else. Relational ministry, I think, is one of the most ridiculous ideas I've ever heard. What do you do when you introduce yourself to someone? When you start meeting someone, you start befriending them. What do you do? You share all of the things you love with them immediately. And you share all the aspects about you immediately. Roger and I did it. I'm standing in the hallway this morning. I say, hey, Roger, how's it going? He's like, good. We've already met each other. We already know each other. We're at the point where we're trying to think of something important to say. I've known him for eight months. I know he's got a twin in Arizona. I know that he's, you know, all these things. What do you... How weird it is if you save what you love for the point where everybody else is already exhausted. They think you're weird. That's not the biblical method. I'm going to make a relationship. I'm going to try to get to know the person for like 11 years, and then I'm going to share what I love with them, which is Jesus. Jesus sends the disciples out. He says, go to the town, enter their house, preach the God. How long do you think the disciples stayed? It's like year seven. They're still living in these people's house. Do you think we should tell them about Jesus yet? I think we're close enough friends now. What do you do when you meet somebody? Who are you? Where do you work? How many kids do you have? Whatever. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous of the movements of the world because they're so proud of their sin. They're so forward with it. We're in the month of pride. They won't stop talking about it. They tell you the first time they meet you. Before you even walk up to them, you can tell because they've, they've got their outfit on, they've got their flag and their hat, and they're out there doing it. And it's like, I, we can't get Christians to even talk about Jesus. They love their sin so much more than we love the Lord. And we need his help. And we need to repent. 
It's not Jesus' problem. There's no problem with our God. The problem is with us. Jesus is just running a corporation as well, and he's given us work, and he can't find good employees. In fact, he can barely find anybody to even show up. And where are you? 